Welcome to the Modern Mind Huff Podcast. I am your host, Richard Huffman, expert in all things Modern Mind Huff. Um, with this podcast, we talk about the Modern Mind Huff gang, left wing urban German terrorism of the 1970s, uh, student radicalism, and other related ephemera. It's been, it's uh, actually, it's May 3rd, 1919. It's May 3rd, 2011. It's been about six months since my last podcast, so I apologize. Um, I took a job about six months ago, and it's been a hectic, hectic six months, and I literally have hardly found the time to do anything related to my site. So my apologies, but actually my job ends in a couple of days, so hopefully I'll have time to do some more um, uh, in the future. So a couple bit of notes. A couple bits of notes before I go on. One is I wanted to congratulate Jennifer Egan. Um, if you've listened to my podcast, you'll realize that my first podcast way back about a year and a half ago was an interview with Jennifer Egan, who is um, who wrote the book The Invisible Circus, which dealt with the Bottom Minoff group and, and the June 2nd movement was later made into a movie with Cameron Diaz. Well, Jennifer Egan last week just won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction for her newest book. Um, it's fantastic. She's fantastic. And I congratulate her heartily. And I'm really proud of the fact that of the interviews I've done, I, I've now interviewed, I think, four different people who've won Oscars. And that was my first Pulitzer Prize winner. So Good for, good for her, and I congratulate her. There's also a couple new Bottermeinoff movie related movies coming up. One is a movie that just premiered at the Berlin All. Uh, I don't know the name of it, but it's about Gudrun Enslin. It sounds terrific, and I look forward to seeing it. And another one's a documentary by, of all people, the daughter of Ulrika Meinhof, Bettina Rail, who. Um, who is she's a very contentious figure um, because she does not particularly appreciate the legacy of her mother. I would love to talk with her. She's had a really challenging life living in the shadow of her mother's legacy. And she did a documentary about her mother, along with a woman whose mother was one of the founders and leaders of the Japanese Red Army. Um, So it sounds fantastic. I would love the opportunity to talk with her, speak with her about her movie. Um, So part of the reason I'm talking today, and I chose to um, pull out my microphone and talk today was because, as the world now knows, the most famous terrorist the world has seen um, in recent memory, Osama bin Laden, was killed in a commando action by um, American Navy SEALs in Abbottabad, Pakistan, this past weekend. And um, what I wanted to talk about was how the choices they had to make when they decided how they were going to deal with his body, because similar choices had to be considered 35 years ago when they were trying to figure out what do we do with the bodies of Jankal Raspa, Gudrun Enslin, and Andreas Bader, who had died in prison in um, Stuttgart-Stamheim. So with bin Laden... It's clear that they planned this action, and as part of the planning, they thought ahead of time, we need to plan out what we're going to do with the body, because they were clearly trying to limit blowback from this, limit whatever kind of excuses people are going to have for them mistreating the body, or also limit the possibility that if we allow it to be buried, that it will become some kind of shrine or something else. So as part of their plan, they decided we're going to take this body out of here. 
We are going to follow Islamic tradition. Apparently, I know nothing about Islamic tradition, but apparently they washed the body, wrapped it, said a Muslim prayer and buried him at sea. So nobody would ever know where he was. And, uh, apparently and probably this was the least bad of all the solutions um, because they didn't really want a shrine to be created. They didn't want stuff to, you know, they didn't want, they didn't want, they didn't want to create um, a, a, a physical place for people to go and celebrate his life. And, um, and I can totally understand that. Um, similar choices had to be made um, in 1977. So what happened in 77? Um, well, to back up a little bit, in um, October of, I'm sorry, in September of 77, um, it's important to figure out what was going on at this time. The Bader Meinhof group had waged terror across Germany. They had killed um, several Americans. They had killed the essentially the head of the Supreme Court. They had killed essentially the Attorney General of Germany, the federal prosecutor. They had killed one of, or they had, uh, they had. Um, uh, kidnapped or killed many people. They had blown up an embassy in in Stockholm. They 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 had they had done their own version of of nine eleven. Basically, it, it had that big of an impact on German society. But they had captured the leadership. They had put them on trial in the most expensive and kind of crazy trial in German history. They had convicted them, and the leadership was sitting there in prison, basically waiting to be transferred to their final cells across Germany. And the prisoners knew that they were not necessarily going to get out unless something had happened. They had failed to, you know, to, to have, to, to have the, the to, to be found innocent, not that they were trying to be found innocent. And they had not been, um, nothing had been able to secure their release from prison. So in September of 1977, some of the members of the group on the outside kidnapped Hans Martin Schleier. And Hans Martin Schleier was a um, leading industrialist, um, probably Germans, Germany's leading industrialist because he was the head of the German Manufacturers Union. And he was kidnapped um, and most of his bodyguards were brutally killed in this kidnapping. And he was um, from his Cologne. I think he was driving from his home to work in Cologne. And this was an effort to secure the release of the leaders, the Bader Meinhof group. But it didn't go that well. They kept, they had him in custody. They would release videotapes and pictures periodically. Um, but it was pretty clear the German government wasn't necessarily going to negotiate. Although they went through a lot of motions, they they had go-betweens talk with the kidnappers. They did a bunch of stuff, but they I don't think they ever planned on releasing him. Um, so later on, about two or three weeks later, some Palestinian terrorists um, uh, hijacked an airplane with the help of other Bader Meinhof terrorists. They hijacked a German airplane, a Lufthansa plane from Palma, Mallorca Airport, and they flew it. It ended up being flown all over all over the the Middle East as various airports landing where they didn't want it to land there, but they landed anyway and finally ended up in Mogadishu. And while this was, um, while all these Germans were being held hostage on this plane, they opened up another round of negotiations trying to secure the release of these German terrorists. And 
the German terrorists in prison were given questionnaires where they would like to go if they were released. It seemed to them like maybe this is working. Maybe we are going to get released in exchange for these hostages. But at the same time, the German government was uh, activating their elite GSG-9 anti-terrorist commando. And this terrorist group flew to Mogadishu under the cover of night. They raided and stormed the airplane, and it was, it was an incredible action. They managed to kill all the terrorists, all four, or actually three of them, one of them survived, and um, didn't and did not kill any of the hostages. Um, one of the hostages, the 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 airline's pilot previously had um, been murdered by the terrorists, but all the prisoners on the plane that night, all the hostages were safe. So back in Stuttgart, listening in on a um, secret radio in his jail cell, I think it was Jan Karl Raspa heard that the raid had happened and which meant that they clearly weren't going to be released from prison. And he let the other terrorists know through their secret jail cell communication system that they had built using the unused electrical wires between the jail cells. They had rigged up a kind of a, a phone system and let them know that, it, you know, all hope is lost. And so Botter and, and Raspa took guns that they had been provided to them by, uh, by uh, lawyers that smuggled into prison and shot themselves, or so the story goes. And Gudrun Enslin hung herself with a wire from her um, window cell, windowsill, and uh, or window, the, the wire covering her window, and she had wire fashioned around her neck. And Ermgard Moller, another terrorist, stabbed herself and almost into her heart with a bread knife that she had stolen. Um, so anyway, they basically killed themselves. And the next morning, um, Germany went from just sheer, utter happiness that all these prisoners, these, these uh, terrorist hostages on this plane had been released um, to just out-and-out out shock that these famous terrorists Three of them were dead. Um, and if you were leftists, you simply assumed that they were killed by the German state. They were murdered. And um, across Germany, I mean, I'm sorry, across Europe, people went crazy. In, um, in Crete, uh, people bombed. I think they, they threw Molotov cocktails at the, uh, Berlin, at the uh, German consulate. In La Havre, they had bombed the consulate. And there was protests and riots in Paris and Milan and and all across Germany. There was there was bricks thrown through windows of political offices. There was riots and protests. Um, tour buses of German tourists were people threw rocks at them when they were traveling on holidays through Germany. It was a very scary time, and people simply assumed they were murdered. Um, so in the context of this, they needed to figure out what do we do with these bodies? And they hadn't, you know, part of the, part of the reason why it, it's also unlikely they committed suicide was they hadn't really thought through what to do with the bodies. I mean, uh, it's unlikely that they were murdered. Um, so what happened was politicians in this milieu of, of increased anger over this 
and um, and and also this realization that leftists assume they're murdered conservative politicians doubled down on these are horrible people and we don't want anything to do with them motif by saying we don't want them buried in our backyards and there was a lot of bitter back and forth um, fighting over what to do with these bodies and finally the mayor of Stuttgart his name was Manfred Rommel and he's a very famous last name because his father was the most famous German general of World War II, Erwin Rommel. He's one of the few legitimate German heroes of World War II. And his son grew up to become the mayor of, uh, of conservative Stuttgart. Stuttgart's in the middle of, of uh, a conservative Catholic area of Germany. And he was the CDU, which is kind of the Republican Party of Germany. He was the CDU mayor of, of Stuttgart. And he said... Um, and I'm going to read what he said here to get it right. He says, uh, he, he stepped into this fray with all these people saying, I don't want him buried in my cemetery. I don't want him buried in my cemetery. He said, I will not accept that there should be first and second class cemetery, said Rommel. All enmity should cease after death. And he picked a cemetery and said, they're going to be buried here. And you know what? People stopped. They said, okay, let's, let's let him be buried here. And, um, and it was interesting how they chose to bury him. And I'm not sure who decided this, but they thought, um, let's bury them in a common grave site. So they took two grave sites that were next to each other. They dug it a little bit deeper and they buried Andreas Botter's, Botter's casket on the left, Jan Karl Raspa's casket on the right, and right in between and on top of them, they put Gudrun Enslin. And on top of that, they put a 4,000 pound lead sheet to uh, prevent grave tampers from coming in and messing with their graves. And then they said, okay, we're going to have this funeral on October 27th, which was, you know, a good, um, a good week and a half after their deaths. So, and, and, and it followed two days earlier, it followed the funeral of Hans Martin Schleier, which was held in Stuttgart at the collegiate church. That's where the ceremony was, um, so anyway, how did the ceremony go? Well, one thing we know, we know a lot about this particular funeral because there, there's this wonderful, interesting, crazy movie called Germany in Autumn, Deutschland im Erbst, that has an extended segment that was filmed, a documentary filmed of both Schleier's funeral and the terrorist funeral. So you can see exactly what it looks like. And it's clear it was an enormous funeral. Thousands and thousands of people there. Many of them anarchists who sought fit to cover their faces. They wore masks. They wore bandanas across their faces. There was clearly hundreds and hundreds of German police officers there. And, um, you know, seeing all those anarchists um, covering their faces, it reminded me a lot of when I was in... I live in Seattle and we had the WTO riots in 99 or 2000. And, um, and I remember when I was in those riots, seeing all these people prior to the riots, having their face covered up. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I wonder what's going on there. And then like an hour later, all hell broke loose and it was pretty clear they covered their faces because they didn't want to be identified later. I sort of didn't realize that at the time. Um, and then the people on this, in this movie reminded me of that. They were clearly anarchists and radicals had a reason to cover their face. Um, so, and that movie was interesting because they chose to, they chose to, um, 
to cut back and forth between the two funerals or, or contrast the, the two funerals. And stuff that wouldn't be as obvious to, say, an American viewer today as was very obvious to a German viewer at the time where they were showing on the um, at Schleier's funeral, uh, they would show, um, if, and if I didn't mention earlier, after their deaths, the terrorists outside murdered Schleier and dumped his body. So they, um, they saw no more use for him and they killed him. And um, so at his funeral, uh, the camera would zoom in, for instance, on a... Um, zoom in on this one gentleman who has this big nasty scar on the side of his face. He's kind of laughing. And, and if you were a German, you immediately realize what that was. That was the scar of those fencing fraternities from the 1930s that formed the basis of a lot of the soon to be leadership of the military, uh, upper class of the Nazi party. And, so these people that were part of these crazy fraternities where they would cut their faces to, to, to show how tough they were, I guess, these people were all Nazis. So by zooming in on that, they were basically showing that, that the thesis of the bottom Meinhof group, which is that German society was still being completely run by former Nazis, um, both politically and in government and in, uh, and, and in, in industry, it was basically housed by former Nazis. It was There was a fascist underbelly. This movie was basically, in that sense, by showing that guy there, was supporting that notion, saying the people at his funeral, that's the Nazi class, that's who you're looking at. And, of course, every, all leftists knew that Hans Martin Schleier was a former Nazi. So... So that was what they were showing with his funeral. Then they would contrast it with the, the, um, the enormous funeral of the, of the terrorists. Um, I went to that, uh, the, that grave site uh, about 10 years ago with my dad. We traveled to Germany. Gosh, it's 11 years ago now. We, we took a trip to, to Germany and we stopped off in Stuttgart. And, and, uh, and after visiting the... Mercedes Museum, we decided to go visit Stuttgart Stammheim Prison, which is just as imposing now as it was then. Apparently it's about to be torn down or already has been torn down. Um, and then we went out to the cemetery to visit the cemetery. And I'll tell you, it was very embarrassing because even though I'm an expert in this subject, I don't speak German very well at all. I'm embarrassed to admit. And um, so I had to go into the office and, expl and explain to a woman who did not speak any English and spoke in the most broken German asked her, where is the gravesite of the famous terrorist? And she didn't know what I was talking about. And I had to say it slower and kind of pantomime terrorism. And finally it occurred to her what I was asking and she was very pleasant, but oh, is embarrassing and it feel weird. I, where's the gravesite? He's terrorist. But she kind of pointed me in a direction. We drove over there and, and it was, it was still really hard to find. It's an enormous cemetery. And, um, and in the end, I finally occurred to me, I looked on the ground and realized there's footpaths and there's a distinct set of footpaths beaten in the grass towards this one area. And of course that's where they're gravesite was. So it's pretty clear, although it hasn't become the shrine that, for instance, Obama probably worried about would have happened with Osama bin Laden, a lot of people have gone and continue to go visit it. In fact, there was flowers there the day I was there. I don't know who put them there, but there was, in fact, flowers there. It's a very simple gravesite. It just has their names. I can't remember if it has the dates of their births and deaths. 
Um, but it was simple and, and I was, I was struck by how, um, how they were just, it was just a simple headstone in the sea of thousands of headstones. You would have no idea that, that these folks brought so much, um, angst and, and, uh, and, and anger to so many Germans for such a long period of time. So the, the funeral was the subject of a very famous painting that I've talked about previously. Um, Gerhard Richter, the, the preeminent German artist, did a series of paintings in the 80s um, about that, um, about the Bader-Meinhof group. And the largest of his paintings, an enormous painting of this cycle, is called Funeral. And it's a, it's a painting of the funeral and all the people there. And it's moving and somber and interesting and maddening and and uh and you can see that in uh it's on permanent display at the museum of modern art and um anyway so i thought i would let you guys know about how the deaths of those terrorists were handled as contrasted with how we handled the death and the body and the burial of osama bin laden i don't think there's any easy way to address these issues but it seems in both cases politicians did their best to deal with it in a somber probably political way um to minimize um future problems and um anyway i just thought that was interesting so hopefully i will be back with another podcast sometime soon a uh, quick reminder I never ever will charge for this or, or anything like that. So the one way you can pay me back if you enjoy these podcasts is to go to iTunes and uh, write some nice comments about the podcast. Give me a good rating. That's the only way you can pay me back. And I always appreciate it. Um, if you want to contact me or send me a, a quick email, I try to respond to all emails. Uh, my email is richard at richardhuffman.com. Again, it's richard at richardhuffman.com. And I thank you for listening and I look forward to talking to you again. Mm -hmm.